0: So how many of you would say there's uh, someone in your family tree, uh, maybe someone in your family, and they're just a little bit off? Maybe they're just a little comfortable. Raise your hand. If you're like, uh, Okay. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're not raising your hand, there's a good chance you are uh, that, that person that's, that's a little bit off. Uh, but years ago, years ago, my grandma on my father's side, she did uh, genealogy research. She found out that I am a descendant of the Black Knight, which sounds cool, right? Except he was hung for being a horse thief, so, which is not, not so cool, and I'm pretty sure there was more than one Black Knight. Uh, then uh, also, I had a great uncle that lived in southeast Kansas, and he, uh, he had strapped on like with duct tape and rope, these giant PA speakers on top of his car, and he would drive through that little southeast Kansas t- town, blaring music, not good music, mind you, just blaring music, or he'd be rambling on the speaker about something, and so like that's kind of what he was known for, and he was a colorful guy with colorful language and, and just just a little bit off. And uh, so I've got some fan, some people in my family family lineage on both sides are pretty colorful uh, people that probably weren't invited to a lot of family events or they were hoping people wouldn't find out uh, that they wouldn't show up because they were a little nuts and maybe a lot embarrassing. and most of us uh, most of us we have somebody in our history or somebody in our family line or family tree uh, like that. Or as I pointed out, we we may be that person. We just don't know. Uh, Now, while there are four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them tell us about the birth of Christ. And Matthew begins the Christmas story. Uh, When he begins his story, he does it differently than Luke. Luke begins with the angel and Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men. uh, Matthew begins with the genealogy. And he traces the roots of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Now he had a couple of reasons for doing this. The first was is, is that he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience and he needed to convince his Jewish people that Jesus was 100% Jewish and you had to be related and connected to Abraham for that to be. Uh, his secondary goal was also to show that Jesus was connected to David, to King David, because the Messiah had to be related to King David. So Matthew begins a Christmas story with a genealogy, and then he does something that we as Western readers, we can miss. And it's that Matthew goes off script in several instances. There are several occasions it looks like he just goes out of his way to highlight some questionable people that are related to Jesus. He names two or three women that weren't even Jewish. A couple of them had not so great reputations, he pauses on the story of David and Bathsheba, and it's like he went out of his way to emphasize the fact that Jesus, in his lineage, there are some colorful, there are some R-rated, there are some people that we're going to see today, kind of creepy individuals. Now, why would he do that? Because if you're trying to convince your audience that this person, uh, that they, they come from God, that they're the Son of God, if you want to build a, you, then you're going to want to build a pretty positive pedigree. You're going to want to make a rock-solid case. But Matthew goes out of his way to underscore that not everybody related to Jesus was very divine, holy, or righteous, or as we're going to see, even very good. So why would he do that? Well, one is that they are part of the story. But more importantly, they are the point of the story. Because Matthew was about to unfold the greatest story ever. The teaching, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And as a a person with a past himself, he wanted his audience to understand the nature of the message of Jesus. Because up until this time, in every religion, including Judaism... It all came down to my standing or my platform with God is what I have or what I haven't done. It's regardless of, of whatever religion it is, that my, my personal righteousness, my, my whatever gets God's approval. And Matthew understood as a former tax collector, as a former traitor to his people, that he wasn't ever going to make the cut with God if it was based on his own personal self-righteousness that all of us have done things that have distanced us from God. And as long as an individual, that their approach is, I'm just going to try to be good enough and hope it works out. Matthew's point is, if that's our strategy with God, then we can have nothing to do with God because we will never be good enough. So Matthew knew that the story he was about to tell was so different And so he goes out of his way to make sure his audience knew that Jesus wasn't just related to Abraham and David. Jesus was related to sinners. And not just any sinners. Sinners that could win awards for their sin. People you would never invite to your family reunion. People with a past. And in most cases, past that they tried to keep secret. So maybe with a grin on his face, Matthew Matthew begins his gospel With the genealogy of Jesus. And this is how Matthew begins the Christmas story. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because again, it's crucial to everybody that he is related to Abraham and David. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah. And here he begins to cause the Jewish reader to pause because he reminds the Jewish readers uh, uh, that, they're, that uh, are familiar with the Old Testament that there is more to the story of Judah and his brothers. Now, when Matthew says Judah and his brothers, he ref- refers to the fact that Judah had 11 other brothers uh, that became the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, and in fact, uh, Judah's father Jacob, would be renamed Israel. That's where we get the name Israel. And so he begins this gene- genealogy, and his first bomb that we might miss is Judah and his brothers. We can miss it. Now, Judah had a famous brother, his fa- famous brother was named Joseph. And many of you have heard of Joseph in the coat of many colors. Some of you are from the generation where you saw a really boppy kind of guy named Donnie Osmond who played, you know, uh, 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 Joseph in the coat of many colors. Uh, many of you, you saw the Prince of Egypt during the 90s, like my kids watched over and over again. Uh, most people, you know something about the amazing story of Joseph, but not very many people know the story of Judah. And yet, as we read the genealogy of Jesus... Math uh, Joseph, isn't mentioned. Judah and his brothers are mentioned. Now, if you were God and you had to pick one of these two brothers through which to bring your son in the world, you would have skipped Judah. You would have chosen Joseph, because Joseph was an extraordinary man. He was a man of extraordinary character, and Judah was anything but. Joseph had incredible discipline, Uh, 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 Joseph uh, had incredible discipline. He was persecuted. He was punished. He was treated unjustly and then in return would treat them well. And uh, at the end of the story, he becomes a savior. He saves his family, he saves Pharaoh, he saves Egypt, he saves the Egyptians. I mean, he is the perfect picture of Jesus. If ever there was a man, if ever there was an individual through whom, you, if you were God, you would want to bring your son, bring the Messiah into the world, Joseph is perfect because there are so many parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. Yet God looks down, says, I need to pick one of these 12 boys. I think I'll pick Judah. And you never would have picked Judah. Why? Why would he pick Judah? Because it's the point of the gospel. It's the point of the story. So, uh, Genesis 37, if you brought a Bible, you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis 37, verse 23. Uh, Judah is essentially a footnote in the story of his more famous brother, uh, younger brother Joseph. Now, the setup of the story is uh, that Judah and his other brothers are very jealous of Joseph. He's clearly the favorite son of their father. Uh, The father makes this big, this beautiful, ornate robe and gives it to Joseph. So one day, Joseph and his brothers are out in the fields, and and, and, uh, Judah and his brothers are in the fields, and here comes their younger brother Joseph. They see him coming, and they have had enough. They've had enough of this favorite son, and that's where we're going to begin. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they grabbed him, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him in the cistern. So they basically grab their brother, they strip off this robe, they throw him in a well that he can't, an empty well that he can't get out, and they sit down to have lunch. And they're sitting there, they're munching on lunch, trying to figure out what to do with their brother. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices of balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So you've got these traders, they're coming through, they're loaded with stuff, they're going down to Egypt uh, to sell everything, and this is where we are introduced to Judah. They're munching on lunch. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? So it's like, guys, I've been thinking. If we just kill him, what do we gain from that? Nothing. So if we sell him, it's like a win-win, right? So we get rid of him, and we profit. It's just like a great deal. And though Judah wasn't the oldest, he clearly was the influencer. He was the leader. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. And then this little blip of mercy, after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. It's like, yeah, he is our brother. So let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. And his brothers agreed. So Matthew's like, let me introduce you to Judah from whom the Savior comes. So uh, eventually, Uh, Judah says, you know, let's not kill him. Let's profit by his pain. So they sell Joseph. The Ishmaelites, they take him, they chain him wrist to wrist with the other slaves that they're going to take down to Egypt to sell. And uh, they march him down. And from Judah's perspective, that is the last he will ever see of his brother. So he splits up the bronze or the copper coins among the other 10 brothers. And uh, Joseph goes to Egypt as a 16 or 17 year old and he's gone. So they take his fancy coat, they tear it, they dip it in animal blood, and then they do the unthinkable. They go to their father, and they break his heart. And then they go to Joseph's mother, and they break her heart. They say, we found this. An animal clearly killed Joseph. Your son is dead. We couldn't even find his body. All we could find was this bloody robe. This is all that's left of your beloved favorite son, And they chose to live the rest of their lives and go to the grave with that secret. And before long, all the money that they had gotten was gone. But the memory and the guilt was not. Over 20 years, every time the family would gather, there's an empty seat at the table that had belonged to Joseph. That was Joseph's chair. Every year on his birthday, his mother and father would once again mourn the death of their son. And Judah knows. He never cracks, he never breaks, he never confesses to anyone, even though he knows in his heart he is ultimately responsible for what happened to his brother because he had the influence to change his destiny, and he did not. Now if you read the book of Genesis, the longest story in the Old Testament about any individual character is about Joseph. Now, uh, it's just amazing. Uh, Judah only gets one chapter, but in that one chapter, his story literally goes from bad to creepy. So this is what happened. Joseph's gone. Judah's like, I'm going to get on with my life. He's a shepherd. He marries, uh, has some kids. The first three kids are boys. Once his first son is old enough, he has, he marries her off to a woman named Tamar. But very soon after, he dies as a young man. And so according to custom, his second son marries her, but he soon dies. Judah's got a third son, but now he's a little gun-shy. He's a little hesitant. He's not quite old enough to get married. And and the author of Genesis, Moses, he doesn't tell us why these two young men died exactly. Uh, He just tells us that what they had done or what they were doing was evil in the sight of the Lord. And And they died. Well, Judah goes to Tamar. And uh, this is now his daughter-in-law, and according to the tradition of the day, he is now responsible for the well-being of this woman. He says, I'm going to take care of you. My third son's not old enough yet to get married, and so uh, basically, uh, you just wait when he's old enough, I'll have you guys get married, and then you'll be in the family. We'll provide and we'll protect, provide for you and protect you. And in the meantime, you need to grieve as a widow because then that kind of keeps me in the category of someone that I can take care of. So she begins the grieving process, waits for the youngest son to get old enough uh, to get married, and so she can be taken care of because this is her only, in that culture, this is her only hope for provision. Because her situation puts her at a very, very vulnerable place for all kinds of horrible things. Well, time goes by, and consistent with Judah's character, secretly, he's trying to avoid marrying his youngest son to Tamar, and over time, he forgets all about her. And these are not large cities like what we think of large cities today. That It's hard to imagine that they did not cross paths and see one another. So some years go by, and, she, and finally... She decides, uh, I need to take matters into my own hands. So she dresses and disguises herself like a temple prostitute. She covers her face. She goes by the town gate because Judah is a a man of great importance in that town. He's constantly going in and out. He does business in the town. He would sit at the gate with the other elders of the town and make judgments and decisions. Judah uh, comes by one day. He sees her. He begins a conversation with her, but he doesn't recognize her which tells us a little something about how much time he's spent with his daughter-in-law. He can't even remember what she looks like. And uh, he decides, uh, here's this this woman, here's this prostitute, Uh, I'd like to have some quality time with her. They agree, and the payment would be a goat, which I guess was the going rate back then, uh, was a goat. And anywho, he didn't he didn't have a goat with him, so after their time together, he says, I'll send you a goat. She says, fine, but as a pledge, I want your signature ring, which was a, uh, an emblem he actually would wear around his neck to be able to sign important documents. I want your signet ring and your staff, which was, it represented his, his position and his power. So these are two very important items. This is a big deal. Uh, so what does he do? Well, he gets caught up Thinking, Not thinking with this head. He's going to go get a goat. Uh, he, he doesn't have a goat right then. So he says, let's have our time together. I'll give you my seal, my staff. Afterwards, she leaves. He goes home. He finds a servant, says, hey, uh, there's a temple prostitute. I owe her a goat. I don't want to talk about it. Just get a goat. Go down. Get her the goat. And she's got something of mine that belongs to me. Like, this is very Christmassy, right? Like, hark the herald. Like, no. Uh, but this is Matthew's introduction. And so the servant goes, he looks around, he asks around, and he, like nobody knows who. He's talking about. The guys at the gate, like, there's no temple prostitute here. He can't find her anyway uh, anywhere. And Moses tells us, Judah didn't want to go down to the gate and go, "Hey guys, this is a little embarrassing, but you know I've lost my signet ring and my staff." No, Judah says, "Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock." So he just decides to let the whole thing go. Well, three months later. Somebody comes running to Judah's house, knocks on the door, and says, Judah, Judah, remember Tamar, like your daughter-in-law, like remember Tamar? And the phrase used in Scripture is, she has played the harlot. She's pregnant, though she's never been remarried. And then Judah does what every person who has a secret and is pretending to be something they're not does. Judah gets hugely self-righteous. You ever met someone who, they were just so self-righteous. Like a year later, or five uh, five years later, it comes out, they had a secret. That that thing that they would just hammer on, hammer on, and it comes out. That was the very thing they were dealing with in their personal life, losing the struggle. See, that's human nature. Like, if we have a secret, if we have a point of shame, and we think no one knows that uh, it can manifest itself in a sense of self-righteousness. In fact, the most self-righteous people I've ever met, I trust the least because I think you've got a secret. Judah, who sold his own brother into slavery. Judah, who broke his parents' hearts into a million pieces, who ignored a vulnerable young woman that he was responsible for, who paid a woman to sexually uh, subject herself to him says, My daughter in law has shamed my family. She must be burned alive. You know, it's it's funny. We don't think of the Bible as funny, but this what happens next is funny because the day arrives that Tamar is to be burnt alive and she has something, right? So she sends a messenger to Judah, and the messenger runs up, and he's got this rod in one hand, the seal in the other, and says, "Uh, Judah, Judah, Tamar wanted me to give you uh, a message. Uh, The uh, the child, I am with with child by the man to whom these belong. You got any idea what she's talking about? She's just like, okay, everybody, fire's off, bad idea, Never mind, not today. We're just going to call the whole thing off. Everybody just take your torches, go home. You know, just... And he goes to see Tamar and he falls on his knees before her and says, you are more righteous than I. And Tamar gives birth to two little boys, actually, and one of them, his name is Perez. And he is in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. It's like, Matthew, could you not skip over that. I mean, like, like now we've got a kid in the line of Jesus, like, he should never have been born. It was like a daughter-in-law with her father-in-law, and that's just so backwoods and weird and creepy, and it's like, you left out a few other names. Why couldn't you just, like, leave out those names? And 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 why did you pause on the whole thing about the the brothers, a name, Tamar, by name? Well, the story's not over for Judah, because about 20-some years later, after he thinks he will never see his brother again, there's a famine throughout the land. And Jacob calls all of his sons together and says, you need to go to Egypt and you need to buy grain. So Judah and Reuben, Reuben's the oldest, they lead the caravan down. They go down to Egypt and guess who's in charge of the grain? Joseph. He went in as a slave and now he is the prime minister of Egypt. It is an incredible, incredible piece of history. It begins in Genesis 37. I highly recommend you go home and read it. The last time they all saw him, he was a teenager. Now he's in his late 30s, uh, and he dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. They didn't recognize him. So much time has passed. He's been in the culture and he dresses. He looks like all these, but he recognizes these Hebrew men and he talks to them. And we're told in some cases that he's so overwhelmed with emotion that he would run out of the room because he would just, he just needed to cry because he was so overwhelmed. Then he'd come back in, he'd get all bowed up, he'd get all powered up. And he kept sending him, testing them in these different ways. Why? Because he wanted to discover, have they really changed? why? And they're like, why? Why is this prime minister taking so much interest in us? Why does he continue to want to see us? And they go back to their father, and they're like, you know, something weird is going on. We don't understand. He keeps wanting to see us, and now he wants us to bring our youngest brother, Benjamin, with us. And he's like, no, you cannot take Benjamin. The last time I sent the youngest son in your guys' direction, it did not go so well. But they're like, well, he won't sell us any more grain unless we take Benjamin along. I'm just telling you, you need to read this story. For some of you, it might be the first time. For some, just to reread it. It's been a long time. It all culminates eventually that they're all in a room together. The 11 brothers plus Joseph, they don't know who he is. Joseph sends everybody out of the room. And then maybe maybe he took off a big old Egyptian head covering and a headpiece. He looks at them and says, I am Joseph your brother. I'm telling you, this is one of the most dramatic scenes in all of literature when you read the whole story. And there on his face is Judah. And Judah is immediately terrified because Judah immediately knows what he would do if the roles were reversed. Judah immediately knows what he would do if the man who sold me as a slave, as a teenager, thinking it would be the end of me, now I have the power over life and death for him. Judah knows his own character, the self-centeredness that had driven him his whole life, And and there he is on his face before the man that has the power over life and death with the snap of his finger. But Joseph says to them, get up. I forgive you. Not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your families. I'm going to take care of your herds. Go get our dad. Go get our father. You bring everybody. I'm going to take care of you for generations. And then later, Joseph says to them, I think it was God who put me here. I think God used your evil intentions to bring me here, to put me in a position to save many. I saved Pharaoh, I saved the Egyptians, and I'm going to save your lives. I'm going to save your family's lives. Joseph is the picture of a savior. And yet God looks at Joseph and he looks at Judah and says, I think I'll skip with the savior and I'll go with the liar and the coward. And I'm going to bring my son into the world through Judah, not Joseph. You see, Matthew, he underscores this snippet of history and this genealogy. Why? Because on his face that day, Judah is a picture of you and me. And that's the point of the story of Jesus. Jesus. Judah is a picture of a person that deserved one thing and got something entirely else. He was a picture of this, that God's grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy is available even to people that have not made themselves available to God. Judah had never broke, never confessed, never apologized. And, and suddenly, at the pinnacle of the story where Judah can and should finally get the justice he deserves, instead he's offered what he needs the most, grace. Grace. And God decides to skip Joseph the righteous and choose Judah the unrighteous to bring his Savior, his Son, into the world. And it's the point of the story of Jesus that never has anyone been expected or even able to come to God based on the platform of their own righteousness. Neither did God intend for anyone to go say, I can never have peace with God because of what's in my past. I could never have peace with God because of what's in my life. What I have and haven't done. I have a secret. I have shame. I've never taken responsibility. Since I can't change the past, I certainly can't do anything to fix my relationship with God. And from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, it gives us a picture of what it means to be offered grace and mercy and forgiveness, not because of our self-righteousness. Your hope, your only hope, and my only hope, comes from God. It's just like Judah, who's he, 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 done nothing to earn anything. He's done everything to deserve justice. And finally, he has to come to the point that I need to accept what has been undeservedly done and offered to me. So Matthew says, before we get to the Jesus part, I want to remind you of how it's always been, that God throughout history has chosen broken people, messed up people, people with a past, people with secrets, the people that have created disappointments for other people or hurt them. Those are the ones he has chosen at any point when they were willing to recognize that they had access to God, standing with God, not based on what they had or had not done, but based on what had been done. And in the New Testament would be done for them. In other words, you are the point of Christmas. I am the point of Christmas, that God came into this world to extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. And when we make first and foremost priority a relationship with God on his terms, that begins to shape how we view ourselves, how we look at ourselves. It begins to shape all that. It begins to change us on the inside. I've seen it in my own personal life, and I've seen it again and again in the lives of others. It begins, it's people who approach God based on what He's offered Him, offered them. And He's offered them what they don't deserve. These men, these are men and women that find the grace to deal with their past, to be able to forgive themselves, who discover how to begin to mend fences and fix broken relationships. So here's my question for you before you leave today. Do you have a secret? Are you in a relationship and you're hiding a secret? Did you marry with a secret? Something that gnaws at you, and maybe eats at you. Is there anything that you're hiding that you hope no one finds out? Are you a person, you'd say, you know, I, I don't believe I could ever have peace with God because I don't know how to fix my past. I can't go back and undo how I, I've, I've lived. I can't pay it back. I've tried to pay it back and make up for it, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. Is that you? It's Christmas. The great news is that God has leaned in your direction even though you leaned away from Him. That God, that God is drawing near to you even though you allowed in the past your, your sin to draw you away from God. God has sent his son into this world because he loved you and I, even in our sin. His grace is available and it doesn't begin with, doesn't begin by, I'm going to clean up my act. That's not how it begins. It begins just as it did that day, 3,500 years ago when Judah looked up at his brother and said, in spite of my guilt and my shame, I'm going to let it go and I'm going to accept. I'm going to accept what I can't earn and what I don't deserve but what I need the most. A relationship of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so today, God says to those of you with the past, to those of you that have shame, for those of you that have secrets, with things that you uh, plan to take to your grave, God says, I'm inviting you into a relationship to approach me as the giver of grace and of mercy and forgiveness. And then in time, I'll show you how to forgive yourself. And I'll show you in time how to mend those relationships. But I don't want sin to separate us anymore relationally. Because I sent my son into the world to fix that. To take care of that. Once and for all. For everybody. For some of you, you've been a Christian or a Jesus follower for a long time. But if you're honest, you still have difficulty believing this is really true you carry around the feeling like yeah god may love me but he doesn't like me he's disappointed in me some of us carry around this carry around this fear eventually the point's going to come god is going to give up on me you always carry around a little bit of doubt is his grace really that big is it really that lasting joseph's brothers went through the exact same process because they weren't fully sure Maybe it's a trick. Maybe after our father dies, uh, maybe after he dies, then, then that's when he's going to get his vengeance. And sure enough, after Jacob dies, his brothers thought, now that dad's dead, Jacob's going to take his revenge, but he doesn't. Years go by, and his father Jacob is about to die. He calls his 12 sons in and gives them each a blessing, and you can read it. Here's what he said to Judah hundreds of years before there was ever a kingdom of Israel or David, 1,500 years before Jesus would show up. He puts his hand on Judah, the deceiver. He puts his hand on Judah who broke his heart for over 20 years and says, through you and your descendants will rise, a king, rise up a king and your brothers and their families will bow down to him. And years and years and years later, a little boy was born and they named him David who would eventually become king. And from him down the line was a baby that would be born who was named Yeshua. Or from the Latin to English, Jesus, who would become the Messiah, the Christ. We are all, what we call Christmas, is God's way of underscoring an age-old message that no one, no one has access to the Father through their own goodness through their own self-righteousness. Access to the Father has always been through grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we've all been invited. But that's not the end because the genealogy goes on. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, and a heads-up, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, that's a cool name, Ram, the father of Minadab, Minadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Rahab had a nickname as well, didn't she? You know why Rahab is part of the story? Because people like Rahab, who we will talk about next week, people like Tamar, like Judah, like Matthew, like you, and like me, we are not just part of the story, we're the point of the story. this room and those who are listening because I, I feel like the vast majority of us, we really do struggle with grace and we really struggle to, to trust you because we live in a world where everything is conditional, performance oriented. So God, I pray for us that you would help us that you would break through all of that conditional approval and love and God that you would just drill into our hearts and our minds your unconditional love That then that would motivate us and free us from shame and guilt and regret to be able to move forward and just experience joy of being freed from all of that and that it would fuel our lives and our relationships and our work lives and our our attitude towards the day and the future. But God, we can't do it without your help. So I pray that for all of us, that you would help us to truly get it. To see people like Judah and those that came and the lineage of Jesus, and for it to just click in our mind. You, you really do love us, and you're really willing to do something of value through us. I pray that for all of us in the name of Jesus.